Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey, it's Anna David here with After Party Pod. How are you guys? Welcome to the podcast. If you're new, we talk about addiction and recovery, and but we kind of make it fun. And um, you heard it here first. We're sort of changing direction, not changing directions, adjusting directions. Um, I mentioned this, I believe, in previous intros, but basically we're expanding our mission uh, to talk about... Um, how to have healthier relationships. You don't have to be sober to care about that. I mean, who out there thinks they know everything about having a healthy relationship? I'm pausing to see who raises their hand. And though I cannot see you, ugh, apologize for that noise. Though I cannot see you, I'm going to assume none of you did whatever. I could be wrong. Anyway, so we're going to be talking to guests about that. They may not be sober, whatever. They don't have to be to want to have healthier relationships and to have learned how to do that. Anyway, uh, the reason, well, one of the reasons for this is that we've had a major shift over here at the After Party Empire, if you want to call it that. Uh, The site previously known as After Party Chat is now known as After Party Magazine. You can get there by, you know, going to afterpartymagazine.com. You can also access us through our new parent site, rehabreviews.com. And, you know, we have all the same stuff, the great articles that you know you love. Look, if you're listening to this podcast, you'll love the, the stories, whatever. I don't recommend listening to the podcast while reading the site, but you do what you want. Anyway, that's about it from me. My guest today, it's, it's actually, I mean, how do you introduce Dr. Drew? You're probably here because of him. You probably don't know me. Um, maybe you do. Some of you do. But um, Dr. Drew, he's Dr. Drew, you guys. His real name, as you all know, is Dr. Drew Pinsky. And he launched into public consciousness when he started appearing on Loveline in K-Rock. And Loveline got real big when he was doing it with Adam Carolla and it became an MTV show. And um, yeah, he was just going to be like a regular doctor until until that happened and as it turned out he has uh, a very media friendly intelligentic personality and now you know now you know he's got his hln show he had celebrity rehab he had um sober house he's hosted uh strictly sex life changers uh you know you name it right um, and, and he also happens to be a completely fantastic guy, uh, love line aficionados and obsessives know 
uh, what a kind, generous, good-hearted man this guy is. And I have had the privilege of knowing him for a while now. Um, I met him first by interviewing him for stories over the years when I was doing more magazine stuff. And, and we became friends that way. And he has been incredibly good to me. And I have watched him be incredibly good to many. And, you know, he has had his share of controversy and I will never stop saying that, uh, people are mad about addiction and I do not blame them. It is a, it is a disease. I said it that, inspires a lot of rage, deserves a lot of rage. And people don't want to look at it and they want to find a scapegoat for it. And, you know, he became a target for that, which I found incredibly frustrating and just inappropriate and cruel, honestly. So anyway, if you're listening to this, who knows if you agree, you can tell me, you can tweet at me at Anna B. David. I, we also have a at, at after party site, Twitter, I don't check that as much, and I should. Uh, you know, and after parties on Facebook and Tumblr and, you know, everywhere. So go go follow that. Go sign up for our newsletter. Um, go review this podcast. Have I given you enough orders? So, yeah, thank you for listening. I hope you love this episode with the one and only Dr. Drew. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh, my God. I think my copy has, like, blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Okay. As you know, I'm so grateful you're doing this. My pleasure. You always are so generous with your time. And I, you know, I have a long history of you being incredibly generous with me going back and this is what I wanted to tell I don't know if I've told you this that when I want to say 1996 I called you and I said um, I don't know you I work for People Magazine I want to do a freelance story on GHB and you said I got you on the phone and you said well why don't you come over to Loveline and I'll talk about it on air, and when people start calling in, oh yeah, I'll give you. You can ask for their phone number. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I know that was a good move. It was a really great move. I couldn't believe it because I didn't know you, and <laughs> and we no, seem legitimate. I was, little look, did I know. Look how legit I turned out to be. The the irony being, I wasn't remotely legitimate at that time. I was interested because I was doing tons of GHB. Well, see how see how intuitive I am. Yes. Uh, yes. Now I think uh, some of it interested me because I was working with a woman then. Who? What was the GHB czar? Remember her? This woman that was way into it. You must have come across her. I don't think I was caring. Like I wouldn't have any knowledge about it except my own experience. You really were just looking for yourself, doing your own uh, well, research, or were you actually going to write an article? No, no, no. I really was going to write an article. Yeah. That, I got to tell you the truth that I didn't sell it. It was for this magazine called Buzz that has gone under, surely because they didn't run my GHB story. Oh, of course. But they were interested, and then it never happened. But that's all right. But um. I it was one drug that I did that I loved and I couldn't believe I loved because it kind of you know I was a cocaine person I was an upper so why would a person. downer why would you like a downer it, it, and I didn't even like being drunk that much and it was sort of just like being dr- drunker than I I'd ever been huh. but there was also a euphoria have you ever taken Neurontin yeah it did nothing nothing for like me. that but yeah. I didn't take 
a high enough dose, I think, for it to even be useful, like 100 milligrams. Okay, yeah, it's tiny. Yeah. I'm looking for this woman's name because she was so deep into it. Uh, Meaning deep into doing it? No, no, into writing about it. And she was like, it's the worst. It's the most horrible. And she was way, way into it. And it never really... And it was early in the sort of GHB abuse years, like early yeah. early nineties. Yeah. And she was convinced this was going to be the the one, the drug that really took over and be such a horrible problem. And it never mm-hmm. really did. No, it really, did. It, it had a, a time there where there was a lot of use, and then it kind of faded out. I remember the the. I mean, I don't. I never heard about like people ODing on it or anything like that. But I do remember there were de- drunk driving accidents yep. that what it turned out. Yep. The people were on GHB. It'll fuck you up. Right, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, and plus, it's hard hard to get the dosing right. Yeah, you know, one thimble, okay, two thimbles, coma. That was one of the bigger problems. So, with it. lots of people were going to. I don't remember that. There part. was a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of things were happening then. But like I said, I guess people learned how to use it or mix it. I don't know because you don't see much of it so much anymore. They're too distracted by doing opiates. You're right. I think they're, so. They're, it's, the opiates are too easy to get and so good. Yeah, GHB was not easy to get. Right. I remember the I did it because I went to Sundance and somebody <laughs> walked into a party with, you know, a huge Jug. thing that looked like saline solution. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, what's that? I'll take a shot. And yeah, I loved it. Oh, loved, you loved it? Oh. I loved it. I rarely have people describe GHB as a love drug, the one I they love. I really did. Was that your main drug? No, no, no. Yeah. I was all, all but, cocaine all the time. But, but when you love something, it's hard not to have it be your, your one. It really scared me in a way cocaine oh. didn't. Oh, you loved it too much. Well, not even that because that was never really a concern. It was more like I felt scared on it. I felt like I was out of control. Oh. And just that dosage thing. I didn't, yeah. you know. And there was a lot of date rape nastiness going on with the drug. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in being an addict, I have been, I was so lucky in that area. I mean, I think that, I think that the fact that I did cocaine alone or with gay men for the last five years kept me, you know, during my darkest years safe. But, you know, that's something we write about on the site and it's so common, just sexual harassment, abuse. There's so many layers to how sexuality gets tied into it. Right. It's almost you almost can't characterize it into cate- you know discrete categories. There is people taking advantage of you because you're loaded. There's trading sex for drugs. There's right. using sex apart and get, they're getting high. There's I don't know what the fuck I'm doing anyway. <laughs> There's right. all kinds of versions. Or I'm a love addict and I'm feeling I can't contain my impulses now. Right. 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 Then uh, you, we can just list and list and list all the ways it gets involved. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. I um. And it's interesting too because I got sober before the Craigslist thing, mm. and or a the lot t- of the Tinder now forget Craigslist. Well, but the selling sex for drugs. Oh yeah, a lot of the girls I've sponsored oh. that was their story. Oh, interesting. So you that's know? who's using Craigslist. Fascinating. I always yeah. wonder who that was. Yeah, mm. girls. Mm. You know, like sweet girls gone. You know, looking for drugs. I mean, mm. they're sad stories. Obviously. Mm. Um, Okay. You mean the drugs aren't happy stories? Yeah, isn't <laughs> it's that, like, yeah. It's shocking. Well, you know what? On After Party Chat, we try to make them happy stories. That's how we're changing the perception. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can be funny stories pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, that was the Long great surprise, I think, getting into recovery was, you know, even my first meeting, people laughing hysterically 
and me being angry because I was like, why are you laughing when our lives are over? Oh, I can't party anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm never going to be fun again. Yeah. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. How dare you be so happy about (laughs) it? I didn't know that was you. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, it's probably everybody when they first. No, it isn't. It isn't everybody. No. But that's, I I didn't know that was you. You, How long did you stay like that? Oh, like a week. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 Woody, so when you say that, you mean people, a lot of people, you know, they tell you, oh, I went in, I was so happy? They have pink clouds right away. Not the first week. Sometimes. Really? Yeah. And sometimes they're just too sick to have anything. You know, they're whatever. They're just happy to have help. Yeah. Most most people I deal with are in some state of relief. Yeah. Because, you know, finally it's like, okay, somebody's going to help me or this, I can stop now or, you know, everybody knows now, whatever. It's some sort of relief. Yeah. Yeah. That was there. It was underneath my anger. I think. <laughs> but okay, so you were, I, you were young. Well, it depends on what you call. Young. Well, the but the younger folk do have a lot of anger. Like I'm entitled to party, and this is going to you know ruin my life, and I don't want to party. You know, those, those ones usually don't stay in treatment. Frankly, yeah. yeah, I wasn't that young. I know that what that age is all about. Um, but you know, yeah, I was thirty. Not you know, the perfectly appropriate age mm-hmm. to get sober. I yeah. believe. Yeah, could have done it younger. What, 28? Yeah, I sure need to do then. (laughs) So, okay, but let's talk. I I know from talking to you before, but my listeners probably don't know as well, um, you know, the whole history of how how you got first interested in addiction, how, Mm. you know, the brief... You know, right. the brief story. Okay, the, the brief story, if I, if I can keep it yes. uh, brief. Um, I was not, I had no intention to get involved in drug addiction treatment. Uh, I was an internist, and I was actually going to be a cardiologist. I was heading that direction. And sometimes regret that I didn't, because that would have been a simpler life in a strange way. Right. But um, I was moonlighting in a psychiatric hospital and I became fascinated with psychiatry and realized my training there had been very, very poor. Like like all internists, it was really weak. And got good at the medical management of psychiatric patients and ended up running their medical services and just spending a lot of my life in this, like at least half my day every day in a psychiatric hospital. And a lot of, at that point, the really medically sick patients, which was primarily all I was dealing with, were the drug addicts. And uh, and when I went down to the drug unit, um, there was a guy there that had made drug withdrawal a clinical discipline, which was something I was not trained in. Well, there was no discipline. I mean, this guy sort of invented it or was just being invented at the time. You know, we used to see alcoholics and heroin addicts all the time at the county hospital and just, right. just sort of haphazardly detox them and kind of pat them on the back and go, hey, you'll be fine now. We, we got you off the drug. Get, get on with it. Yeah. So just keep, stay away from those bad guys. You know, right. this, oh, my God. Were we pathetic? And um, here's 50 Viking, by the way. And, you know, you're going to need it. You broke your leg. You're going to need it. Yeah. I mean, the, our, yeah. our level of understanding was so bad. And when was this? Early 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the mid to later 80s, um, I was good at drug withdrawal. And people were asking me to see lots more drug addicts, but I still didn't understand addiction. I just believed that I was doing medicine for drug addicts. Right. And I was the whole time looking through the window. When I go to the nursing station, the nursing station was attached to the treatment room. <clears throat> And you can look through the window and see the 12 steps on the wall and see the – and I always go, what is that goofy shit in there? Come on. What right. is that nonsense? 12 steps. Give me a break. And the nurses would always laugh at me like, oh, no, no, you, you don't understand. That I'd be – I liked everybody down there too. I had sort of an affinity for that. I don't know. I felt there's a magic to the whole world of recovery. Yeah. And um, – and I used to hang out down there and just, you know, sort of help out and things. And uh, saw some patients go from young people go from dying to amazing. 
in the course of about 60 days. And I, and I was like, well, what the hell was that? Yeah. What just happened to these people? And uh, can I be a part of this? And I'd like to understand it a little more because usually in medicine, you kind of go from acutely ill to chronically ill. Yeah. You don't go from acutely ill to better than you've ever been. Better than you've ever been. That's yeah. like, whoa, what the hell? And um, so I started digging in a little deeper and getting involved with it and trying to figure it out and t- taking some, you know, some education. And then I was asked to be the assistant director of a program, same program. And the guy calls me and goes, it's no, nothing. I just need you to keep doing the medical stuff. I'll be doing all the psychiatric. Don't, don't worry. It's fine. And then he quit six months later. And then I moved into the director's position. And now I had to get my shit together. Right. So I made that my life to really – and I, by then I was, I was deeply uh, – the word that comes to mind is impassioned. I was interested. I wanted mm-hmm. to know more. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, it's on. And I really dug in and educated myself. And it still took me, I'd say, another five years to be good, to really, to my, my now my current, from where I sit now, right. looking at how my skill set then, I was, I was adequate, but I was not good. You know, it took me about five, maybe it almost took me 10 years to get really good. So what um, did you learn in that time that made you? Uh, how to, well, you have so much experience, the range of experience with people with this disease. It, it's a protean. Yeah. It manifests in protean fashion. And, uh, you know, you have to be prepared and have a skill set that helps you handle and, and, you know, help people in a, such a broad range of situations both psychiatrically, both biologically, what their state their brain's in, interpersonally, their family, their emotional systems, their trauma issues. You have to you have to have command of all of that the moment they walk in the door. Yeah. And nothing can scare you. You can't you can't feel overwhelmed and scared because the patients that, that rattles them deeply. I mean, they need to feel safe and contained. And I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. And uh, and I know what you need to do to get better now. Whether they do it or not, that's always the conundrum. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of, you know, where the rubber hits the road. And I have no – and I, as the as the uh, whole world of uh, replacement, you know, harm avoidance developed, I, I stayed away from that and stayed in the abstinence uh, base. You know, because remember, I, I got into this to see the flourishing, to see people yeah. – amazing recoveries. Don't get to see that when you're on the couch on methadone or – you know, struggling with Suboxone and still can't function sexually or interpersonally or your moods are blended. And, uh, I, I'm not interested. That's To me, that's pharmacology again. I, I'm not so interested in that. But people who get sober and get on SSRIs, a completely different... It's a different thing. And, yeah. and, I'm, not, and I'm not here to bash replacement. I'm not doing that. It saves lives. I get that. Yeah. It's just not what I'm interested in. It's not what I practice. And uh, it, it, it concerns me that it's being just used on everybody all the time and nobody's getting off of the replacement. It was really designed to be short-term kind of thing. Yeah. And is that thing recording? Yes, Are we good? It is. Okay, we good. We got two recordings. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and I just don't do it. I just, I just, I, I can't even have an opiate on my unit. I, I noticed that if I, we, I started using some replacement stuff early on, and just the presence of an opiate on a a cohesive drug unit with a community and a, and a unified staff. You bring an opiate onto the unit, and the patients start vibrating like like there's an earthquake going on. It's like they can you smell it. Consciously, even they don't even. I don't know, know how they. There. Well, somebody finds out that yeah, somebody's got it. Like, I need. How can I've got? He's gets. Why can I? Oh, I've got to have. You know, the desperation just starts. They start yeah. climbing. They, they, everyone rises to the ceiling. Like, it's yeah. like, and I can't run the unit. I cannot run the unit like that. So either you're medicating them so much that you're putting them down, 
in which case they're not doing any work. Yeah. Or they're vibrating like maniacs and they still aren't working. And so I just said, fuck it. No more, no opiates on this unit, period. No benzos on this unit, period. End of story. You want the benzos, you want the replacement. There's another part of the hospital. You can go get it. No harm. Yeah. If that's what you feel you need or you have to, whatever. Not my unit. But for detox, a different thing, for short Yeah, term. but but I, I don't need that shit for detox. You don't? No. I can get anybody off anything in if seven days, anything except Suboxone, it takes about fourteen. Strangely enough, but With no uh, medication. Oh no, no, I have used oh, a lot of medicine. Right. I just don't use the opiates. I don't use the benzos. I have, right. I have alternative things I can use that are non-addictive and not so gratifying. Right. And you're not going to feel quite so good, but it'll be done, and you'll mostly sleep it off for five days. Like anti-anxiety, sort of. We use a lot of Seroquel, Neurontin, and high doses. You yeah. and your you and your weenie hundred milligrams. Yeah, we use waste. like we yeah. use like twelve hundred milligrams I've, five four times a day. You know? man. Yeah. Um, and so w- rehabs, more and more rehabs are popping up every day, of course, that are, that are using this, discharging people on Suboxone. That's, everyone's doing it routinely. Why do you think that is? Yeah, because the patients demand it. The families demi- demand it. It's, it's an easier, kinder, softer, safer, it's frankly safer way to go. So Not it's to high- stay on it isn't safer. No, no, it isn't. But, but it's highly reinforced by the system. The, the, everything reinforces it. Everything you know, says do that. And, yeah. and it's, it, it's always the hard path, you know, the road less traveled that, that yeah. no one wants to do. And I don't blame the patients. I wouldn't want to do it either. I if I, the families particularly. Like, I, I don't want to see them go through that. I don't want to think they're going to use again. Give them something that makes them not, oh, good, perfect. They're not going to want to use perfect yeah it's, it's not so scary uh but it's sad when that happens mm. i didn't actually know that suboxone could cause sexual dysfunction is yeah. that a common yeah it's a common thing i did not know that mm-hmm. um okay but back to i remember something you told me a while ago about when you were starting off that that the skill one of the skills you really had to develop was the bullshit detector. oh yeah oh yeah well my whole my whole empathy um my ability to empathize and my ability to detect bs became razor sharp like in like magical like i can't like i'm like i'm like like literally i shock myself regularly like i I, it was became sort of this thing that i just trusted and was perfectly it was a perfect instrument but man it would shock the shit out of me all the time so almost in a psychic way yes yes which is ironic yes because because my wife's stuff i know which is which is why that whole group of her friends fascinate me they're yeah i know their brains are doing something i don't know what but something. I think I understand what it is. But and interesting, they're all trauma survivors and stuff. I just oh, told they are? just told her this morning. I think these people's left brain shuts down, and and one of her, one of the psychics actually expressed this to her that yeah, my right brain was highly developed because I was using it to survive. I couldn't. Wow. I was in this horrible, traumatic, disastrous survival mode, and uh, this piece of my this intuitive piece had to get developed. And, That's amazing. Uh, and I had to develop that intuitive piece dealing with these patients. Right. Right. Um, this fascinating. Just to sidetrack a little bit more on the psychics, were so you, were you a believer until? No, I'm not. I'm still not really. I'm still not really really a believer. Really, I'm just. I'm an intriguer. Yeah, I want to see what they're because I've seen what they do and they're doing something. It's something interesting. I just, I just can't quite figure out what it is. We were at dinner, and I don't mean it's a trick. It's not a trick. It's just they're doing something. Yeah, with their brain, it's something they're actually doing. It's just they're not. They're not talking to dead people, but they're doing something. They can, whether it's intuitive or whatever. When we were at dinner after you left, uh, Colby, the psychic, 
she like looks over at me and she's like, oh, da-da-da, your dad. And I was like, you know what? I'm so bored by my dad conversation. I've done it in therapy. Can we talk about something else? And then she kind of just threw out some like really right on things. I know. I've seen her do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. And then I said, can I drive you to Drew's show? Because I want more of a reading in the car. And then in the car, I'm like, so, so you know, what's going to happen with my sight? And blah, blah, you know, she was telling me stuff. It was great. Yeah. So there it is. I don't know what that is, but I think it's that... Our, our brains are the right side of our brains do a lot more than we realize a lot yeah. more and, and I really believe that the magic of what that holistic intuitive system does is with people yeah. it's an interpersonal phenomenon and, and I believe it also probably is you know has a group sort of something to it as well but there's humans qua humans with humans are doing something really interesting and magical. I just don't know. I have have a lot of ideas about it, but it's barely scratching the surface. Right. And so, so for me, when I'm dealing with a patient, I will blurt things out of my mouth that I have no idea where they came from. Like, like the the classic story I tell is, um, a heroin addict was sitting in front of me for like the fourth time, you know, he's relapsing and, Nice kid. I liked him a lot. But this time he was, he just come off a second, you know, ventilator, near death, whatever. And he was sobbing. He was like, this was it. I saw the white light. I'm dying. I know it. I have to stop. And he was, and I felt, it wasn't that he wasn't in pain. He was in pain. I could feel it. And it was heartbreaking. And what popped out of my mouth was, you are so full of shit. I don't know what to believe anymore. And, and, I was shocked and he was shocked. <laughs> and we both and he stopped crying. He's looking at me and I was and in my head I thought, what the fuck? Yeah. What's the matter with him? What did I just say? And this poor guy, he's gonna he's gonna punch me. I know it. Yeah. It's like upset. and then he he stopped and stared at me, and uh, he went, uh, "You're right. How'd you know?" He goes, "I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I can't even tell. How do you know?" And I go, "I don't know, but there's something here, right? I I do know you're full of shit, and I know you're hurting." But I also know your certainty about your recovery. That's bullshit. Yeah. And then he got, he got sober. and uh, I, I, He only worked with me for a couple of weeks. So I don't know what happened to him, I must admit. He went off to a residential program or something. Um, I didn't hear that bad things happened. So in, yeah. the, in the state that he was in, he must have gotten well. Yeah. I hope he did. So and um, in terms of your... You know, yes, you weren't interested in it at first, but the the background. I mean, you've talked about suffering from anxiety, yeah, and depression, and depression. Yeah. So, when did that first surface? In college. Um, didn't I talk about that at the improv the other you night? Did, <laughs> so, but my listeners weren't okay. there, and you showed pictures. Oh, my depressed self. Uh, I it's, I was I was depressed in high school. I didn't know. I didn't know what that was. Uh, and in college, I started having panic attacks, like like horrific panic attacks uh and was sort of mismanaged all the way along i mean people didn't identify the depression when i was you know in high school and then the panic attack i was sort of you know told to take long walks and get my shit together and did you uh, go to a psychiatrist or just i went first first went to the school doctor but then i knew enough to go to the mental health thing and started seeing a psychologist but they they really didn't I don't know they didn't do much of an assessment and uh, I mean from right now where I sit and look what they did it's like eh, they did a lot of supportive psychotherapy but not any real interventional anything right and uh, then I got a new psychologist like my junior year that was more effective she, he was actually a psychiatrist that did therapy which was interesting yeah I never had that again yeah I know yeah. it doesn't exist anymore <laughs> yeah uh, no uh, and. 
And that that sort of I don't know what he was doing. It was very he was a psychoanalyst, and so I couldn't really tell what he was doing. But I know he helped me. And then I went to medical school, and I was good, 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 and um, sort of made lots of choices and changes, and, and made, did good, healthy things for myself. Uh, I ended up being resentful that I was my man. That I was first of all that there was no adolescent focused treatment. There was no sort of nobody was expert enough in what adolescents were going through. And now there's giant fields of disciplines that just deal with adolescents. There was nothing like that then, number one. Number two, I was sort of misdiagnosed and mismanaged. And I didn't have to suffer the way I did. I really suffered with the panic and the anxiety. It was, it was bad. And uh, nobody thought about appropriate pharmaceutical intervention. There just was nothing. I, somebody gave me some benzos and that made it worse. And right. give me a break. Um, I even, like my dad was trying to manage and he's a doctor and yeah. then, come on a boundary dude come on yeah. and my uncle was a psychiatrist and he was trying it's like that's that's anathema that's wrong that bad do bad. you think even though they could have helped no they couldn't help they they you can't have you, your family help you that uh, that's unhelping i know that's okay. that's the opposite okay. of helping that's but, them making the boundaries porous which is the opposite of what i needed so anyway, so I got well and I did better and, I, and medicine was wonderful and I loved my training and I just got better. I, things got better. Uh, and then I started getting interest when, when I came around interest in psychiatry that I told you about. I was able to look back at the care I got and go, oh, come on. I think it's why I was interested in adolescence and, yeah. and addiction and things. And cause it's younger people and their mental health sort of intrigued me because no one was doing it. Certainly no one was doing it very well. And well, uh, yeah, uh, and then I went to th- then when my son needed brain surgery when I was uh, uh, he was one I was like thirty three. Um, I'm 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 hesitating now because my son just sent me a text a few minutes ago that he heard my Mark Marin interview, which was about this same material. Which was the most popular Mark Marin interview, by the way, ever. I heard. Really? Yes. Well, that's nice. You okay. Didn't know that? I did not know that. Um, but his text, let me see, it was very, it stopped me. I was like, what's he talking about? It was weird enough that he said, listen to it. I stumbled upon your Mark Maron interview. I've learned so much about relationships. Ha ha. I learned about why the brain surgery topic never really comes up. Oh my God. Why you never tell me these things. Ha ha. Oh my God. Hmm. And now we'll have to talk about that. Um, but he, he, his brain surgery sent me to, sent me to, um, therapy because it was overwhelming it was shattering i mean it was it, we it was scary yeah. and my anxiety then went out of control again and my wife actually was the one that said you need a therapist and i was like yeah yeah i can't wait to do it i'm always intended to do that again yeah no no now and so i went i and, went for 11 years oh uh, wow That's and it was nice. great every week it, oh yeah sometimes twice did you but not psychoanalysis well, my therapist became a psychoanalyst, and my fantasy is is that I drove her to it. That's my fantasy. But she did. We did a full cycle. I mean, a, you know, an induction, a sort of a plateau, and then a closure. I did like a three year closure. And that's a psychoanalysis. Thing. It's a kind you of a psychoanalytic really construct. Through it like that. And not usually these days anymore. And it was very good for me. Were you on the couch? Mm-hmm. Kind of. Um, and did you ever do any medication no. for any of this? No. Never. Well, the, the few benzos there in college, and that was foolishness. And did you think about for panic attacks or anxiety? No, no that wasn't in the... But the, so it had passed by the time people were aware of... But some of the time, some of you, by the time I was in medical school, that's when I, I literally was like, well, why didn't somebody give me these medicines? Uh, that, that was the day of the tricyclic antidepressants, which are pretty right. good for panic. And uh, I was like, I got angry. I was like, why, why didn't somebody offer? These were around that people, these physicians that I was dealing with were that poorly schooled. They didn't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, it was a different time. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. 
But I, that's a. I'm sorry, but I, I'm not willing to let them all off the hook right. quite that easily because it's easy to say that, but. Mm. It's only six years later, seven years later, I'm looking at this going, what the hell? Yeah, you no, know? it's true. I mean, I'll tell you, though, in terms of negligent handling, uh, my psychiatrist before I got sober, I accidentally told him I did cocaine. Like, it was, it slipped out of my mouth. You know, you have to lie to your doctors when you're an active addict. Right. And he uh, ended up, I was in group therapy. He told me I had to tell my group therapy or he wouldn't see me, or he would tell, because I had been referred by the woman who ran it, the therapist. So I go to my group the next week, and I was like, oh, you guys, I was doing tons of coke. I stopped. Done. Went back, you know, never stopped doing it. And then I was getting a lot of Ambien from him and lying. And he, I went in one day, and he's like, I can't see you anymore. I can't tell you why. I know. I think you know why. Never said rehab. Never said sobriety. Said $250. And, like, that's that was in... In uh, the year 2000, how... How old a psychiatrist was this? That's an interesting move. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't agree with it, but it's, oh, it's, 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 it's more enlightened than some of the things I see happening every day. Are you serious? Day. I don't think... I don't like it, but, and I'm sure you didn't like it, but it, to me, that's a better move than a lot of the things I see. But not, not go to... I, it's not, I don't rehab? like it. I don't okay. like it. I don't like it. But I think it's a really interesting, interesting... I, you, you remember it to this day. It got through to you, didn't it? It certainly didn't get me sober. No, I mean, let How me How long clarify. after that did you get sober? Probably a year. That's but, about what I'd figure. Okay, no. We are not giving this man any credit. I, I, I don't, I, well, I don't want to give him a break. I'm, I want to give him credit. Those are two different things. Okay, can I finish the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this Go might ahead. change your assessment. Okay. He gave me, I can't even tell you how much Ambien. Really? Did not refill my antidepressants. Said get a new psychiatrist. And give you a bunch of Ambien? Yeah, because that's what I was taking. That's I was taking 10 a night. So How many? Ten. He gave you ten Ambien at night. No, he was giving them to me, and he said, "Cut these into quarters." And I was taking those full pills and taking ten of them a night, like a lethal amount. I don't know. I don't know how. How did he not know? I would lie, and this is why. What would you say? I dropped my loss. I went traveling. I wasn't even leaving my house. I went on a trip. Okay, that's it. I forget it. I don't like it. And I, I I go back on everything I said. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's a he's a known. psychiatrist who works with addicts now i mean it's really crazy oh my god he ended up sending me a bill once i was sober and i wrote him and i said if you send me another bill i'm like reporting you to the american medical association i didn't even know what that meant and i never heard from him again mm. anyway anyway n- my resentment to work through well you know i i, I have i you know so many of these guys in that zone uh that killed lots of patients i mean yeah. you know like you know remember did you remember tom arnold when uh, who strung him out on stuff? Yeah, I've heard the, his doctors give talks, and they're like, "Yeah, we're kind of changing our thinking about opiates and what how to give them." Like, you're kind of changing. You've killed all the, you've right. my patients. You've killed them. Right. So many of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, and now these guys, I you know, the media coverage of these guys getting busted. These sort of pill mill doctors. Yeah, that's a different group. That's the pain management people. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, those. those are there's scary. you can understand something. There is such a philosophical shift. Those people were trained that pain is what the patient says it is. Right. And they literally – there was a time when you could walk in and there would literally be a menu. I'd like 40 of fentanyl and the yeah, I need 35 of that Demerol and I need oh – and they would just God. pick. They'd pick off the menu. And the, literally the, the discipline, the, the, the clinical discipline's professional position was who are you to say? That's what they say they need to control their pain. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'll tell and, you. And they get furious with people like me. Furious. Still? 
Oh, I still hear lots of it. Like, I mean, human. How can you let them go through that? You know, um, I, it, when I, I needed to take whatever. There, it's very different today. I, yes. I had to take them. Um, finally, the California Medical Association finally has, yeah. has changed things. Well, in pharmacies, most pharmacies don't even carry opiates anymore because right. they don't want to get robbed. Robbed, and they, they don't want to get the liability. There's a liability now. Right, yeah. right. Finally. God, dear God, finally. So, okay, so as you became more interested in 10 years in that you're, you know, you've got the system down, then, then you know, for treating addicts and mm-hmm. understanding how addicts work, and you, from, from the moment you saw that where you were an advocate of 12-step programs, would you say? Yeah. I just never saw anybody, I, 12-step to me was, I just saw some magic with it. I saw what happened, and I, didn't, and I saw people that rejected it do badly. Pretty simple to me. Yeah. People that used this treatment got better. People that rejected it or did it halfway didn't do so well. Do you take a lot of flack for supporting? Yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. And my thing is, go do whatever. I, I listen. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy is great. Dialectical behavioral therapy is great. But when somebody is in full, I I treat sick drug addicts too. Yeah. I mean, there there are you know there are addicts, people that are half addict, you right. know, that maybe respond to a therapy, and you can kind of control your using, and you don't want to get all the way sober. I, I get that. That's all right. right. But sick, sick, sick people that I treat, they they. They have to do this, right? Because that one of the reasons they have to do it is for many months early in their disease, early in their recovery, rather. Somebody has to sit on them twenty four seven, and there just aren't professionals that will do that. You yeah. need you need that recovery community yeah. sitting on them, watching them, reflecting on them, watching the disease operate, yeah. giving calling out their bullshit all the time. Yeah, it's not once a week or twice a week or three times a week. It's for months. All the time, or you will relapse, and That's, so yeah, and so the, so the people should the, the professionals that that you know insist that other kinds of interventions are important or necessary should be delighted that this is They're available. Off their hands. Not just yeah. off their hands. This, this is they just can't be done any other way. There's not enough resources in the world to have a professional sit on patients. That's yeah. why we had hospitals. You know that was sort of what that was. But you, know, you couldn't do that for very long anymore. Insurances wouldn't pay for it. So the recovery community, they're the ones that were doing that. And in the process, I, I really fundamentally believe that you – did see, you see that Huffington Post article that came out? The, the recent Suboxone one? No. Well, I didn't see that one. Yeah, I, maybe yeah, I was – Oh, God. There was one about uh, we discovered what, it, what causes addiction. addiction. Oh, okay, yeah. It's caused by ruptured relationships. All right. Right. Well, okay. Very, just so. Just so, ladies and gentlemen. It's yeah. just so. Of course, addicts have rupture relationships. Yeah. Of course, they're dysregulated. That's what motivates the drug use in the first place is not the disease itself. Yeah. But in the recovery, you have to develop the capacity for closeness. And to that extent, 12-step is a guided process of developing closeness with people who have a deep, empathic understanding of what you're going through and can see you and can see your disease. And that's a rare thing. I'd never thought about it like that. It's it's you know it's sort of people standing in for doctors. And well, no, it's not standing. It's, no, it's, but I mean, it's 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 a mechanism that just can't be replaced any other way, other than the hospital. You could sit in a hospital for three months, but that doesn't happen anymore. You need to, yeah, I mean, to be able to be free to go about your life yeah. and have these babysitters is the wrong word, but sort of kind of like yeah. that. Yeah, you need that. Yeah. You really need that. Or yeah. I mean, if you're a sick addict, you need that. So and so then um at what point in treating addicts did Loveline start? I 83. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really begin really the addiction thing till 91. Oh 
my god, I didn't realize it was that it, long. It, oh yeah, Loveline was my attempt to do community service about AIDS. Right. That's right. why I started that. That was I. I was 24 years old, and I knew what young people were up to, and I was treating and putting in the ground all these people every day at the county hospitals with this thing we were had been calling gay-related intestinal disease syndrome. We were just starting to call AIDS. We didn't have a causative agent. We didn't have anything. The term safe sex hadn't been coined yet. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what the hell was going on. We knew that when, when they came in with their first episode of pneumocystis, they had six months to live, and that was that. Uh, and I just thought somebody's got to talk about this and because no one was talking to young people about it. It was a weird time when young people were not having sex. Or you usually don't talk to them about yeah. it. You don't discuss yeah. it because that's a venereal disease. That's right. you. Right. As opposed to, hey, everybody, slip a condom on. This, yeah. this thing is this is serious shit. So that was my message, my simple message. And how did the, how did the public respond to that at first? Oh, I was uh, horrible. Right. I, I my my residency director threatened to fire me. I had to stop it for a while, and then the, I was like, like, and I thought, oh, I guess my uh, something wrong with my judgment. I guess I really something's wrong. He told me it was something wrong with me. I was sick. How dare I do this? Jesus. And and I and I and I thought, oh my god. And this is a guy I respected. And I thought, oh my god, I must be really impaired. Mm. And so I stopped it for about six months. Now in that six months. The HIV story broke, yeah. and all of a sudden it became a, ma- a, a a mandate. Physicians need to get out and talk about this. So I kind of tiptoed back in. Three years later, the guy that had so so horribly abused me ran into me in the hall. I was his at that point was his uh, superior. No, I was his chief resident. He'd he'd picked me to run the program. Oh. And he goes, hey, you still doing that radio thing? How about I do it now? I'll just take over for you. Like, <laughs> so he conveniently you, forgotten. You asshole. Yeah. Well, now it's uh, now. oh, yeah, everyone's doing it now, so I'll just do it. Yeah, yeah. Let me do You're it. Like, you, okay, you step sure. aside now. Thank you for keeping the seat warm. <laughs> yeah. It's my turn. Just to warm and, up. And I now. just thought, oh, come on. And so, and so, so was it first then focused on sex because of that? And yeah, the drug it was. Uh, HIV, came yeah, the drug came much, much later. Much did it later. come as a result of talking about sex, or how did drugs become such a focus? It, it um, it was sort of – it's hard for me to tease out what was what, but I remember stuff that would come up on the radio I would focus on in my training and at the hospital and stuff to sort of make sure I really got up to speed with those things. And obviously drugs and alcohol came up a lot. And um, in terms of the relationship between trauma and addiction? That came later. Um, my interest in trauma um, probably started in the early, mid-90s. Mm-hmm. But but it it became a major thing for me. That that's my that is an area of, of profound interest. And did it become an interest because of the addicts yes. you were treating? And you yes, saw the I, I gave a talk for uh, on behalf of the 20th anniversary of a guy named Alan Shore who wrote a book called Affect Regulation and the Origin of the Self. It's about trauma, mm-hmm. and he's the granddaddy of all this stuff. Uh, he he just he set the field on fire, and one of the guys that is in that group of, of they're not really disciples. They're all what would you call all the all of Jesus's are they all disciples? <laughs> it's like all the people. Uh, they all to me are like religious figures because I read their stuff like scripture. And uh, Dan Siegel, I was preparing a lecture for Alan Shore's twentieth anniversary, and we were talking. And I said, you know, all of my patients have trauma. And he goes, don't don't say always. Don't they just just don't. It's not a good idea. To always say always. So when I gave the lecture, I go, you know. I've been warned by Dr. Siegel not to say always, so let me let me try to be clear. It's n- my patients don't always have trauma, but 100% of my patients <laughs> seem to have trauma. So it's it's always there. Yeah, we, so but not all addicts 
in no. the, I mean, you're talking about my you patients. treat low it's bottom. Stuff, it's low bottom, super messed up, drug, you know, poly, poly diagnosed drug addicts. That's me, my yeah. patients. Not everyone has trauma. Yeah. You, you can have, and you can be a bad drug addict and not have had trauma just for whatever yeah. reason. I don't see them. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the connection between the genetic predisposition mm-hmm. for addiction and the idea that those parents may be the parents most likely to cause trauma. Because they're also got the gene and they're also yeah. got the disease. Right. And so just raised in, being raised in an alcoholic family can be traumatic. Yep, yeah. For sure. But, but also trauma can be, you know, not exactly what I think people think of with trauma. Right. Uh, neglect is one of the major traumas. Yeah. Uh, and, and addicts tend to be rather sensitive people, too. Yeah. And so, you know, things that might not reach the thr- – you know, they, they talk about these days the dandelion and the orchid. Okay. Like dandelions are going to grow in the cracks yeah. in the cement. Orchids, you need a kind of special environment where things uh-huh. don't work out so well. And I think addicts oftentimes are orchids and uh, okay. things that they're very sensitive. And so things that, you know, might not reach the level of trauma for the dandelion easily does so for the orchid. Yeah. Oh, it's a sweet metaphor, but so awful to be an orchid. I can just tell I you. I think I am too. Yeah. You yeah. I think it's, it is awful. Yeah. I don't think of you like that, but I guess it's true. I mean, um, you know, in terms of whenever you've gotten feedback that ha- that isn't nice, I I know you take that Ugh. hard. Yeah, bad. Would you say you take that? It, my impression is you take that harder than you take in the great. Oh, way, way! I can't hear the other stuff. <laughs> You're the bad. I yeah. Know. I mean, I I like the good because I like people, and so I like them to flourishing and thriving and feeling good and stuff. That makes me feel good. I don't really care that they're that, saying nice. No. Things. Mm-mm. The bad goes right into me, like 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 daggers. And do you think that's the orchid thing, or do you think that's orchid meets codependency codependency too? You know, I was reading a thing about mentalizing the other day. Uh, Peter Fonagy is the big mentalizing guy, and. And mentalizing is just sort of how we construct understandings of other people's minds. Yeah. And there's, I finally they started realizing that some people over mentalize, and I'm one of those people. I, I, I experience other people long before I experience myself through other people. Like on the outside looking in. More? Like like this, like Bob Forrest said this to me once, he, four or five years ago. And I thought it was really a profound statement. He goes, you know, was, he goes, there's two kinds of people that, in this world. There are people that look in first into themselves and then into the world, and the people that look into the world and then into themselves. Oh, and yeah. and I'm in the world. I'm in people before I'm in me. I'm, oh. I'm way more focused on you, and then I react and I sort of I'm aware. Finally, and after ten years of therapy, I'm aware of what my feelings are, but. For many, many years, I wasn't even aware of my feelings. I was aware of your feelings. Right, right. And, but That's I, true, I true codependency. That. Yeah, yeah. So, But again, is it how they're judging you or just you relate to their pain? Like your empathy all, all the supersedes. Above. Okay. Yeah, the pain, the pain, their pain mobilizes my pain and yeah. it becomes excruciating. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, judgment, being judgmental, that kind of stuff, I just hate that. I just, when you're, when you're, I just, it's just find it the most painful thing when you're out in the world trying to help and do good and yeah. you get negative back. It's just very painful. And do you, you, I mean, I know even with just what I've gotten in terms of comments on stories, like I just learned to stop looking. But you yeah, can't avoid it. I know. I have to kind of engage with it a little bit. Yeah. And, and the, the stuff that won't go away that's so unfair, I, the helplessness I don't like. Yeah. And so what do you do? You just, do I you just, say, I won't talk about I've answered this already or mm, you just you just defend it or? I just if I have to answer, I do and I just move on. I, yeah. I, I mean, I know in my heart what's going on. Yeah. But I, 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 I'm so frustrated that I can't seem to get it across. 
Yeah, you know, I always felt... And it I, seemed like with Mark Maron, I got it across somehow. I, yeah. felt, I felt like that was effective telling of my story. And I, I you know... Yeah, I mean, I think he's a good person to mm-hmm. help share that message because he's, you know, sober and real. And mm-hmm. did you like him? I loved him. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of great. Yeah. Um, I'm doing his TV show in about a week. Oh, that's I right. Can't I, wait. I somehow knew that. That's amazing. <laughs> so As excited. yourself? As myself. That's I'm so fantastic. excited. Yeah. Um, in terms of, oh, God, I had such an important question that I got distracted thinking about Marion. But, um, but, but, okay, yes. Uh, Feedback, ignoring it, moving on. I mean, it's it's a good – it's important, I think, especially in this day and age, for all of us to do that because the social media for anybody, you know, and for sensitive, you know, yeah. orchid addicts. I, how do other. adolescents survive these days? Can you imagine? No. I mean, we're all orchids when we're adolescent. And, and, uh, and you're very dependent on what your peers think of you and say about you. And, and they're at all, you know they can just say anything as horrible as they want, yeah. and then gang up and pile on. Yeah, Ugh, the the mob quality. You know, I've got a lot of thoughts about mobs and what makes them work and why why people like to scapegoat. And it, it's it's a sacrificial impulse. People in 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 groups they want to have a human sacrifice. Right. And the more narcissistic the individuals in that group, the more likely they are to act out that aggression that way. Do you think it's fear that they could be the one ostracized that starts it? I, I, it's so foreign to me. I don't understand it yeah. that way. I, yeah. I, I think it's more just a, a survival, a way to, to discharge aggression so they don't do it in dangerous ways, you know, for themselves. You know, I always felt about about you know your situation in particular is people are very angry about addiction, and I don't blame them. Mm. And then they're like, "Where can I focus this anger? I need a place." Right? Do you Maybe. know what I mean? Yeah, it could be. Um, it could be. Yeah, because they're. They addicts have hurt them, or you know they don't have addicts in their family that made them feel pain or miserable. I, I get that. And yeah, I mean, and it's this thing they think is a choice they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so, uh, oh, that, that, another thing that you've told me that is just fascinating. This thing that you heard back going back to trauma about at a medical conference where somebody said, like very casually or something, said, "Oh, yes, all hundred oh, percent." Yeah. What was that? Yeah, yeah. I was at a uh, – it, it came up again. It, it was a little bit different. The data was a little different than what was quoted, what, what you're referencing. I, back 20 years ago, we were – physicians were mandated – the mandate began that you had to have this specialized training in pain management and end-of-life care. Mm-hmm. And so you had to go to these big conferences on pain management. They were run by the big pain management groups. And I remember the pain management director got up, and the first thing he said was – he was talking about chronic pain. And he goes, well, funny thing about these chronic pain patients, 96% of them have a history of sexual abuse or physical trauma. Anyway, let's talk about methadone. And I was right. like, what? What? We're just going to let the trauma just like – Yeah, and nobody else reacted? No one even understood what he was saying, I don't think. Wow. Yeah, because it was not really the, the meaning of childhood uh, trauma was not really in, in the ethos. Yeah. Uh, again, if you want to listen to some interesting lectures, look up Bessel van der Kolk because he, he was there. Tr- he's still trying to you know, create trauma awareness about the impo- impact of trauma because that's all we're all dealing with. That's what we all deal with in, in mental health now. Yeah, yeah. Do, um, and, so, and so do you – have you seen that in terms of – People with chronic pain? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's probably not as high as that, but, but it's, yeah. it's very common. I mean, because look, you, when, when you've been through a, a shattering experience, 
you disconnect from your body. It's called somatoform dissociation, particularly when your body is the source of unpleasant experience. And you, you, you're no longer integrated as a whole. You're no longer a brain and a body. You're, you're not together. You're a brain and a body separate. Right. And so your body has no way to tell its tale of woe other than through things like pain. Right. Your brain will have thoughts and will have moods and will have all these other things that will let you know you're a trauma survivor. But the body, which is no longer communicating with those, those affective centers, can only give you pain. Right. As a way of telling you, I'm scared, I'm miserable. All that stuff becomes a disorganized output from the body that never gets integrated into the what we call the right side of the brain, which is the holistic map of the body that that really how we experience ourselves uh, as a physical being. And I mean, I don't know what the percentage is of people that suffer from chronic pain, but it's pretty high today. It's high, and that opiates only make it worse. Finally, they're coming to terms that that's the, for years they've known that's a terrible treatment for chronic pain, and then then their response is, "So we just got to control the amounts that, right. that we're using." It's like, yeah. no, no, it's a bad treatment. Stop it. Use something else. What is a good tr- a tramadol? I guess is that. <sighs> oh, careful with that. I know. I've I now heard that it's an opiate. But, like, I, why do people call tramadol non-addictive? Because the drug company marketed it that way. But it is less addictive. Le- it's a weak say? opiate. Yes, okay. it's a weak opiate. But I can't tell you how many people I've had relapse, have full-on relapses, and they're like, I can't understand what was happening. I was going to meetings. I was doing fine. And then you trace it back. Oh, they, my doctor gave me this medicine because I wasn't sleeping and I had restless leg and right. tramadol. Right. And then, boom, they, they three months later, pow, they have full, full relapse. And so what is, um, I know we have to wrap up very soon, what is the best treatment for chronic pain? Well, it, there's no single treatment for any, it's, it's a team approach. Yeah. Lots of things need to be done. Neuromodulation is a new thing that uh, is What's really, that? it's neurobiofeedback and yeah. you know using magnets and ultrasounds to change the brain function. We're going to be able to really reintegrate the brain of the body. And, and help regulate it. So much of chronic pain is not the pain, but a part of the brain called the insular cortex, which is the part of the brain that registers not the somatic piece, not the, not the ow, my finger hurts, but the misery associated with pain. Right. And in chronic pain, that piece is going, is going insane. That's so interesting. So the thought about the pain is worse the than the The misery pain. experience of the pain. Right. And it may include thoughts and feelings about pain, but it's, the, it's not the pain itself, but the misery attached to the pain. That's so interesting. Um, do, and okay, in terms of the future of addiction and then the future of addiction treatment, what mm. do you see? I don't know. I don't know what the future of addiction is going to be. I, I hope that we have less traumatized people growing up. Uh, and so the addictions we see will be more of a old-fashioned quality, not the kind of hardcore, right. you know, polydrug, pharmaceutical nonsense we're seeing today. I'd like just some straight-up alcoholics, please. Yeah, just yeah, just some, bring them on. <laughs> um, so I, I think we might see a little more of that. We're still going to see more pot, you know, as that legalizes. Yeah. We're going to see that more of a part of the game. Um, I, I think we're going to see more understanding of it as a medical condition, more appreciation that it's an illness. I do think that, 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 that you're right. The people want to be angry at the individuals with this illness. Therefore, they don't want to call it an illness because that somehow exonerates your responsibility. They want you to be responsible for what you did that made that hurt them. Right. I understand that. Uh, but I think that it's going to go away as, as the brain story gets more and more into the public uh, consciousness. The treatment side... 
My hope is the treatment size gets much less loosey-goosey. And the only way I see that happening is by treatment centers getting attached to hospitals. I, there, there's no way that, that uh, insurances are going to expand the inpatient services anymore. I mean, it's going to be three to five days, and that's that. That's just what insurances cover. That's it. It's all they cover. And outpatient only a lot of the time. And or outpatient only. But I want to. I see a, an intermediate thing, like a like a Ronald McDonald House, mm-hmm. but an addict house mm-hmm. uh, that's you know staffed by the hospital. That the policies and procedures are the same. so you have a standard of care that's medical, and you can rely on it. And it's not going to be somebody who just says, "Hey, I've got the cure." Right. It's you know it's going to be up to JCO standards. It's going to be reviewed by Department of Mental Health. It's going to be a certain level of care that uh, you you can have a national standard, which we don't have. Yeah, there's no national standard. We need something like that. That's so, a very positive yeah. outlook. For the I, I hope so. Well, sure. if it ends up not being sort of twelve step based, it's not going to go very well. Yeah, it needs to have that kind of. You know, we didn't. We, we we've talked for an hour. We didn't mention spiritual component of all this. Let's do that very quickly. Okay. <laughs> it's, let's do this because, because that's the hardest part. I know, uh, and it's I know. And it's certainly the most non-medical part. But we did talk about the magic of the right brain and the intuition and all stuff. I, the, the spiritual piece is in there somewhere. It is. It is. I know. I you know my experience. I might have told you this is that you know I couldn't stop doing cocaine for you know you know I could stop for three to four days, whatever, sometimes a month, and then I you know went to program and I was told like these very simple things and uh you know to pray on my knees and things that i was like jewish girls don't do that like i had every reason to not and um and i did it because i was desperate and then my experience was within a month this thing that i could not stop doing i had no it was like i had my tonsils removed when i was 20 it was like that it was like it got removed and then i then i doubt there's god you know after this miracle that makes absolutely no sense was performed in my life. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and, and yeah, yeah all well, you the time, don't have to believe the miracle happened anyway. I think you do have to believe. Uh, for you do. Yeah, I but mean, I'm not sure everybody does. I, I, my, you know, I doubt it probably every day. You know, when I get scared or anxious or yeah. you know whatever it is. But then I, I know I have to circle back around, and I don't know if I had. Yeah, sure, there are tons of atheists that are sober. And, you have to have faith. You yeah. have to have that. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a, a complete concept of God, but you got to have faith. Yeah. What do you tell people who say, oh, I can't do AA, I'm the God thing? I, I, I usually find them somebody in the program that can <laughs> shake, yeah. them, shake them down a little bit. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it, there's always a reason not to go to 12-step. Yeah. That's the biggest one, I think, though. Yeah. It's a common one. I can't stand that. It's a big one. I mean, yeah. they, that's what they'll say. I can't stand the God thing. But you can find plenty of meetings that, yeah. you know, that don't get into that. I just said, look, it's hope, faith, you know, closeness with other people, dealing with shame and guilt, creating an inventory and really taking honest and being honest, living a certain kind of life. That's all it is. Yeah. It's very yeah, simple. I know. It's very I simple. Know. Well, this has been amazing. We're done. I oh, think. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add? You have no, just what a so. pleasure it is to be your friend and to see you flourish. Oh, with you the best of them. have been so good to me. And I learned about the GHB today. I didn't even know about that. I know. We had a whole, we have, we've had a 20 year history that you don't even know about. Now I do. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. They don't call him America's doctor for nothing. That was Dr. Drew. Uh, how excited are you that he was on this podcast? Maybe you're not as excited as I was, but I was goddamn excited. So there you go. Thank you for listening. Please go give us a five-star review on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast. That will make other people find it. And uh, I will talk to you very soon. <laughs>